cool cool mysteries <laughs> um okay cool um so yeah so just to get started um yeah, how how are you feeling today? What are you up to on this fine Saturday? Um, oh, I'm you know a typical nerd Saturday. I'm uh, going to be heading out to a TTRPG at a friend's house down the street, where I'll be playing a cantankerous elf who is very judgy of humans in the Warhammer setting. Oh, okay, interesting. Are you playing like the Warhammer role playing game? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I I have never played that game, and I've never actually played in that setting. I feel like I just learned wild stuff about it periodically <laughs> somewhere online and I'm like what yeah it's it, it's fun for me I'm I'm kind of weirdo because I started LARPing first and then only started doing TTRPG in the last couple of years I played my first D&D game uh I've never played an in-person D&D session it's only ever been online because a lot of my friends are scattered around the west coast and so I played that for the first time like two years ago at the most um so I don't have a lot of basis for comparison, but I'm I'm enjoying the adventure. The GM is great. So uh, it's Carnival of Chaos is the, the adventure. Yeah, that's that completely tracks. Like every Warhammer thing is called like abundance of killing. <laughs> but the craziness happens. It's actually been less crazy lately, but the adventure opened with we were all uh, in jail. Spoilers. I don't know if this is a can. It is a can adventure. So a little bit of spoilers, but we were all in jail and we were going to be um, executed. And so we had to break out. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we did, and everything was going flawlessly. And then the old lady who was like, had brought us our gruel in a, in an opening scene and would kind of been a little bit, um, overly enthusiastic about our suffering a little bit. <laughs> um, anyway, she came into the hallway and we're like, Oh no, we got to stop it. So, so one person rolled to grapple, one person rolled to persuade and all of the roles were failing. And so I rolled to take the uh, I don't know if I can curse on this, the shit bucket. <laughs> you can definitely curse. Feel free. The shit bucket that I had in the cell with me that I decided to take with me because why not? I decided to roll to just throw it at her to like knock her out, right? And I double critted and split her skull. <laughs> <laughs> so she was dead. And a bunch of us took insanity points. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you uh, you don't just move on from something like that. No, no. You, in fact, become a kleptomaniac who ends up getting lured by the forces of chaos, which is what's happened to my character. Oh, classic forces of chaos. Well, when you steal, you know, books made with human flesh, it tends to go sideways after. That's true. Yeah, you pay the price. You know what you're getting into. The, the terms and conditions on the inside of the, the book made of human flesh are quite clear. <laughs> so you you mentioned you, you only started playing D&D and, and doing tabletop stuff pretty recently. I... I don't you I, I don't usually like to ask people how did you get into gaming like it's kind of a stock question but sure. if you started with LARPing and I think specifically with campaign LARPing mm -hmm. if, is that correct? Yes, yeah. Um cinematic buffer LARP in Southern California. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. So how how did you just kind of stumble into that? Um a boy brought me to LARP. <laughs> yeah. Uh typical story. Um so my uh boyfriend at the time who is now my partner eh, is uh was playing vampire and other types of local larps and uh was kind of dissatisfied with that scene um pvp is not for him uh i don't i don't know if it's for me i haven't had extensive pvp experience but a friend uh was like oh you gotta come down to because we were living in santa barbara at the time while i was going to graduate school there which is where i met him and so a friend said hey there's this great game called nine kingdoms in the la area 
I'll run a tabletop for our nerd crew in Santa Barbara to sort of flesh out the world a little bit, get you exposed to it, see if you like it. We'll draft up some characters and see and go from there. And I've been playing that game for nine years. <laughs> it's my home life. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I have never had that long of a relationship with a game. Mm, yeah. So I've played this. I'm on my third character now. The game has a forced retirement cap uh, mm-hmm. so that there's no like gods walking around with hundreds of character points. Uh, so they really encourage you to uh, tell a story that has a definitive arc, a zero to hero storyline. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, the game and the game has been running for well over 15 years, uh, maybe close to 20 years at this point. And uh, but it's unfortunately sunsetting this year. So the last potentially the last camping event is going to be at the end of 2022. Interesting. Yeah. Um I'm curious about what what precipitated that. Is it just a matter of like, just seems like the right thing to do or people have other responsibilities in life or other things are coming up for the organizers? It's been run, running for a really long time and the organizers have, some of them have moved out of the area. So there is a lot of factors. Mm. But um, it does kind of relate to, you know, my work in terms of how much... Um, a community can change over time, the life cycle of a community, for sure. And uh, the passing of the torch and how that can be successful sometimes and difficult other times to kind of get the right alchemy uh, to continue a community on, if that makes sense. Yeah. Reading through your work and talking about the unique challenges, I think, of a LARP community and of it existing and thriving, but also of studying it to begin with. Because on the one hand, it seems like, okay, I'm going, I can apply small group theoretical models to this group as well as, you know, to any other group of people that gets together. But when you're dealing with a group that operates on two different levels of reality, and all of that is factoring into it, um, I can see why that was just such an appealing thing to study. So I originally tried really hard to keep my work life and my play life separate. So I really pushed against trying to do any kind of LARP research for a while. And, you know, in other ways, my LARPing would bleed into my professional life, like going to board of trustees meetings when I'm a first year professor and talking to the board of members and telling about my research and sensing the moment where it clicks and they sort of are giving me that influence card kind of in a way like a court game. I don't know if you have uh, that experience with LARP. And life. Um, So there's that side of things. But in terms of wanting to do research, I was really reticent. Um, I met Sarah Lynn Bowman uh, at WeirdCon, which uh, friends of mine had run in uh, Southern California. And uh, saw her talk, uh, got into kind of reading some of the things and got excited about, about it. So that's why I started looking at the first work that I did on the dynamic life cycle with applying models of small group dynamics like you're talking about. And yeah, I think it's really fascinating because the research on small group dynamics, which I knew sort of vicariously from graduate work, um, really has focused on specific types of groups, work groups, like a software team that's just going to be working on a product for release or nursing groups that work together to try to determine uh, patient care, um, group therapy. And I'm thinking, LARP does all of this, right? Like, we, I mean, 
LARP is not, LARP is therapeutic, it's not therapy, right? But people do use it as a form of catharsis and self-discovery. People do work together on a task many times with varying amounts of duration, short tasks, long-term tasks. Uh, it's play, it's recreation. So it has so many different fundamental aspects of group life merged together into one uh, process. Also, what you mentioned about having different layers of the in-character dynamics, the out-of-character dynamics, as well as the interstitial space in between those uh, makes it so rich and complex. So I wanted to see if it would have parallels to the traditional models of small group dynamics and where it would diverge. Mm -hmm. And um, it was interesting reading, I think, the first paper that you put out about this that was very focused on the group that you were a part of. I don't know. Um, one thing that I'm curious about is how how the other folks in the LARP felt about being a part of that study, because my assumption is like kind of excited enthusiasm, but I don't know if that was across the board. Yeah, I mean, people in the community are very, I would say, wary of LARP academia in some ways. There are certainly a few people who think that it's kind of something that we all think about and so what gives anyone the right to maybe publish about it in a particular way and I don't know I some criticisms of of LARP academia have come up in general which I think was a reason I shied away from it um it, but I think people were enthusiastic I didn't work with many individuals only people who were on the staff side uh for a couple of interviews just to give context to the data that I was gathering on the forums. I haven't yet, I've been toying with the idea of doing some kind of study now that the group is dissolving on that end of things, group exit, group end. And it's, the time is running out to kind of get that going. <laughs> Basically my next, my, my last opportunity to get something through the ethics review at my institution would be in August to really be able to do something substantial. But I'm, I am hesitant for those reasons that it's tricky to want to say, hey, you're going through this really tough time right now. Can I study that? <laughs> can I just watch you? <laughs> uh, can I ask you? Can I watch? And then write about it. And it's also personal for me. So um, I don't know if I'd be able to get that distance that I would need to do it justice. That's, um, it is such a plum opportunity. I mean, that was one of the really open questions in that first study was about the the adjoining phase and what that could look like for a LARP and whether whether it was kind of in fact going through like a half ending phase constantly. Um, this like recursive development that I find very interesting. Um, or whether that kind of the really idyllic phase in the model is possible for something like a LARP. Um, but it sounds like it could actually be happening. Yes, yes, definitely. I think that any community goes through periods of turmoil, um, especially one that encourages new membership as much as uh, LARPs in Southern California do. Uh, definitely there is an idea of bring new people in and we'll even give you incentives to do that. We'll give you UP you can spend towards adventurous cash to get stuff. Um, and then that just is great because it means there's new people to invigorate the community and bring in new ideas, but but the group is always growing and changing and there are challenges that come with that as well. Uh, I know that there is a group in our in our community that's ballooned up to 300 people and they uh, run 
every couple of weeks. And that's incredible. Our group, I think, capped out at about 100 players at a given regular event, not like a season finale event, and has shrunk again, especially one that's been running for so long and has so much history to it. I think that's one of the factors, though, in the ending of the community or of this game uh, is that in part because there's so much lore and so much oral tradition and things that have happened that are sort of locked away in the minds of different storytellers, some of whom have departed the community or even just moved to a different state. And so you get, uh, it's not as nimble, I would say, to the players personal needs as much just because of these logistic factors versus a newer community, a newer LARP that uh, where the world is wide open. So the other, the upside though, and the thing that makes this very complicated to study it as well is that this isn't a group that exists in a void, right? This is a group that exists in a community, a larger community of LARPers. And so many of the people who play in this game that's ending uh, play in other games together with a subset of each other. There are a lot of new groups that are starting kind of aware of the uh, absence that's going to be in the community from this game ending. And so uh, as a result, this is impacting lots of other overlapping communities in, in a lot of ways. And I actually just started, I started moving from, so I started LARPing as a player, and then I started also writing about LARP, and now I've embarked on running a LARP this year which is really bizarre to me and not something I ever sought as an opportunity. But, um, and I can see the differences there though, because the head ST, my friend James Kirkley, just posted on the Facebook group for that group, sort of asked me anything about my homebrew system. There's a meme going around on Facebook in general about that. And just kind of posted and said, you know, ask me about the worlds that we're playing in and I will flesh it out even more. So that's the flip side for an entirely new game you have so much open space to develop that you can develop with the players and that can be really powerful too absolutely so there's a lot of opportunity there i'm curious i mean having you you have a particular very like informed academic view on how how groups develop and their life cycle oh you know what i'm actually going to stow this question for a second why don't we talk a little bit actually um, for listeners who may not be familiar with small group study, let's just quickly kind of run through the, you know, Tuckman's phase model and then how we kind of see LARP fitting into that. I don't know. Can we do that in like five, five minutes? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> it's been a while since I wrote this paper, so I don't know how fresh it is in my mind. But the basic idea is that... Uh, Tuckman's original idea, and he was a researcher who was uh, working in the 60s, right? So there's been developments since then. But Tuckman's original idea was that groups go through these phases of development, and he viewed it, or at least wrote about it, as quite linear. So you start with uh, the group is forming, and you're trying to develop trust and, and essentially find out, each group member is trying to find out, is this group even for me? And usually at that phase, there's a directive leader someone who in this case in the LARP community would be like the GM, uh, the head ST, the developer, uh, who calls a lot of the shots. And so part of that group forming is just determining, do, do I trust this group? Do I trust the leadership? And group members are relatively passive, I would say, at that time. And then it can move into more of a norming phase where 
the group is trying to just invest more in each other and figure out how the group can work together. What are the norms here? Uh, what what do we all believe in? What are we doing together? Um, nope, I got that wrong. That's third phase. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Storming comes before norming. <laughs> yeah, storming comes before norming. So storming is like that really tumultuous phase where you're basically just testing the boundaries and the norms. And then norming is where you've now gone through that storming phase. And that that's really interesting from a LARP perspective because what happens with storming is often there can be a lot of change, right? The group goes through this period where people are maybe even arguing. What are we doing? What are the rules? Who are we as a community? And, and even ban- banal things like you know, what defines machine gunning? Like how fast can you hit someone with a sword and still be within the normative boundaries of play? Uh, As well as existential things like, you know, what happens to the soul when the person passes into the beyond? Is there agreement in the setting on that? Is there agreement among the players on that? And so I think that's made even more complicated by the, the fact that, as you mentioned, there's these different levels of play. There's the the in-character dynamic. So the characters may believe one thing, but the players may also have conflict if they as players have different understandings of the setting or of the rules or of the social norms. Uh, How much immersion is required? If it's late at night on Saturday night, can I break out? Can I sing a song in pop culture to represent what my character's feeling right now? Or do all the songs have to be from a sort of a European book of, canon songs that are oh quote unquote okay at a LARP. So these kinds of yeah, these kinds of questions really matter because they tell people whether they belong. And so you can get uh, a series of small or large or cascading group exit that can happen when group members decide this isn't for me. I don't feel that I belong. I don't feel that I fit. And that can be hard for a community. It can be seen as a sign of poor health for the community. People can feel because especially if you live embedded in a bunch of them, people can move to another group and, and, and say, you know, that group wasn't for me and bond over that, which becomes its own, could be a negative cycle. But it can also be really healing for a group to circle up around members who do share a vision. Not to say that the people who left were inadequate or not helpful to the group's growth, but just that when a group does have a coherent vision, when the people who are in the group work together really well, then that group could be described as healthy. That's an interesting point because I think we often think about someone leaving a group as like inherently negative, as though there was some failure on someone's part. But I guess like a lot of the time that can actually be a healthy thing, like people moving on to different things that are better suited to them or, you know, the group just kind of becoming what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think it's interesting. I just had a thought that I don't know if many LARP groups do this. We're at an interesting time, I think, where LARPs across the world are starting to, some are definitely ahead of the game here, but are starting to take on uh, new practices and best practices rather than just sort of like, we're just going to do it, right? There's there's a lot of really cool safety stuff, right, coming out of uh, the LARP scene and, um, you know, uh, we'll, Roland and Atwater's paper, um, also stuff they've done with Sarah Bowman on that, Lori Brown, other people are really starting to think about how do we codify LARP safety mechanics, right? And, but on the other hand, I think that this question of 
looking at the LARP community as a relationship that can change. There's not a lot of stuff on that. I think it'd be neat if LARP started to have exit interviews, <laughs> almost like, why did you leave the group? How do you feel about it? What are your plans in the LARP community going forward? Uh, I mean, we do collect a lot of data, I feel, as LARP runners and don't necessarily always know what to do with that data, right? Like in the form of post-game write-ups and things. Um, but that could be really interesting, <laughs> as well as, a, as an idea that, that people running LARPs could learn from. And then, so, okay, so we've got, we've got forming, we've got storming, and then after sort of these boundaries are tested, uh, moving on to norming, where the group is, in theory, according to Tuckman, more cohesive, more able to work together towards the ultimate goal. Um, they're, they're establishing, uh, crystallizing these norms, and then going into the so-called performing stage where they actually do the thing that they form to do. So for the example of the software team, Presumably all of this has happened and then they can get down to the work of building the program out. But of course, uh, researchers that came after really questioned this idea that uh, it's a linear process at all. And so this idea that I found was, it seems more like there's a cycle between storming and norming that can happen a lot, especially in this LARP community where uh, you have what I mentioned, which is the retirement cap such that the social dynamics are always getting shaken up when characters retire and those social networks change. So for example, on a personal note, um, I, my second LARP character was uh, a leader, one of the leaders of a group that was sort of like an artsy bohemian, but also, you know, social justice oriented rabble rousers. <laughs> and we would, we had an in-character space where we would invite people to come in. There was a lot of poetry, a lot of singing. Um, I don't know if you know Janaea Kemper at all, but. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah. She was part of this group. And uh, as some of these characters in the group retired, because we were all sort of at the same DP level. So a bunch of us retired around the same time, that group essentially ended in the game. And so that's an entire social network that just kind of shrivels up um, and is replaced with other really cool, awesome groups and things. And that's great because the game is constantly changing and evolving, which is important. But it still means that I don't think that stability of one phase, as Tuckman would see it, is possible in that kind of situation. I, I wonder if it's particularly difficult to have that kind of linear development because in if you're role playing if you, if you're role playing you're constantly renegotiating reality like that process of deciding okay what are we about and what's going on is like infinite like it's it is arguably play <laughs> that's what you're doing yeah i mean i think that that's where i also was fascinated with the parallels to child play because and the 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 magic circle that we talk about in larp literature the idea that when we're within the magic circle, these rules that we've negotiated are what standard for reality and the power of that as a parallel to the physical circle that children will form when they, and I'm literally looking at my wall right now is a, is a Celtic tapestry and there's a bunch of concentric circles. So this is very trippy for me, but the children will get together and uh, decide what the rules are of the game before the game starts. And that's what we do, right? And that can have some really powerful elements, but if we're not all on the same page, that can be really disruptive as well. 
Mm-hmm. I, I kind of envy researchers who are studying like playground play among kids because it is the most like fascinating and sometimes sometimes very dense and difficult to tell exactly what's going on. You know, like when it's something that I pass by and I see kids playing, I know that there's so much that I'm missing, like so many cues that are illegible to me. And I love that. I think it's, it's very interesting too. I think one thing that I, I think of as a psychologist is that there is also a gendered component to play, a socialized gendered component of the rules being much more up for negotiation and communal. Uh, for femme socialized folks and much more uh, these are the rules we set the rules for ask folks and I wonder how that comes into play for LARP communities as well as other cultural norms around rule setting and communal versus agentic forms of play yeah and and relationships to rules and how they can be invoked or how they can be changed who has the authority to change them well, I was going to say that is one of the things that I observed in looking at the, the forums for my own LARP community is about how the ST, the head storyteller at a certain point in a community per Tuckman's model, will hopefully take a back seat and let the group develop and have more informal leadership emerge so that it becomes more decentralized. And that is, I think, a marker of a healthy developing group. That's what I take from Tuckman's model, that yes, a directive leader is needed at first as the group is just forming and is in this fragile state and there needs to be someone for people to look to. But as the group grows, then it should become more decentralized. It should be that the all the group members have some stake. I'm, I'm curious about what group health means to you. Yeah, it's a term I... I first came up with when I was just trying to write my abstract for the Living Games Conference last year and sort of how can I pitch that? So I did a keynote for the Living Games Conference and kind of like, how can I explain my research to a big room of people, many of whom aren't academics, but who all of whom are really passionate about LARP and what will get people to actually feel that this is relevant to them. And I think that we all care a lot about our communities and about their health and progress. So that's that's where I first came up with the idea. So it's something that's pretty, I think, loose in my mind right now. Maybe I'll write about it some more, get it more codified. But just this idea that is the group thriving are well from my from my I teach a course on intergroup dynamics. And so the thing that I can think of from that is this upward spirals versus downward spirals of trust. Uh, are people both both interpersonally as well as their relationship? I'm making this up off the fly, by the way. Are people both interpersonally with each other um, inter inter let's group wise? So there are subgroups within our alert community, right? Are those groups interacting in a healthy way that is building rather than reducing trust, as well as their relationship to the organization? There is a formal organization and its and its members. You know, are we having building upward spirals of trust or are things starting to become fractured and distrust and communication breakdowns? And so I think that would be the the way I think of group health. I think I think trust is a good thing to to lay that on. Um on on a practical level, when you see it it's very obvious when you see trust breaking down, but what what's the antidote to that? What what do you do? So again, from the intergroup relations literature, it would be 
uh, one of the major issues with trust breaking down is, and going back to the research on group phases, it's about not having a shared reality and not having the ability to, if you have a dif different, re different understandings of reality, can you at least identify the humanity in the other person's perspective and say, okay, I feel this way about what has gone on or what the world is. You feel something different and I see that too and it has value. So I'm thinking about research that's been done on the Israeli-Palestine conflict, for example, which is very different and much more important and potent than, you know, a LARP community, but still has a lot of the same markers and same emotions and can affect people uh, psychologically very much when, when a group, a LARP group or any community someone has invested in is fractured, right? You see that there's this inability to see other perspectives as, as valid as, as, worthy of consideration mm -hmm. that's legitimate yeah mm -hmm. yeah and that's the basis of trust uh sharing common grounds agree agreeing on something can be the basis for a healthy conversation around difference in general right so you have to you have to really dig sometimes with groups to figure out what is the basic thing that we all agree on like how how many layers of disagreement do you have to like sift through before you can get to that bedrock of like, oh, okay, but we all agree that this is this, or we all agree that we want, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever it is. Right. What are our goals from a group perspective? Um, groups have uh, elements of common identity, uh, common goals, share, you know, shared goals. Sometimes a common enemy can be helpful. It's kind of a little bit negative, but it's true. Right. So we know this from the robber's cave study, um, research by Sharif and colleagues, which was a LARP, right? If you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> most, most social psychology experiments, they're just LARPs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a coincidence that I'm invested in this lifestyle. But so, right, the Robbers Cave study, what they did, Sharif and colleagues, is that they uh, had a boys camp and they divided the groups into the Eagles and the Rattlers. And uh, basically tried to figure out, first they had to tear them apart, right? And so they had a bunch of competitions because the prevailing model of intergroup conflict at the time was realistic conflict theory that competition over resource sources real or imagined will uh, create intergroup conflict. Now we know yeah. from other research <laughs> that sometimes it's as simple as, you know, wearing blue versus red, but um, Sharif and colleagues were going with this model. So they had these competitions over things like cleanest bunk or uh, tug of war thing and uh, for, to win little pocket knives. I'm just like, I'm, I don't understand why you're trying to divide these groups and then you're giving them weapons, but okay. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Man, that's the other thing. Social psycho psychology, LARP, also wild. Like also just completely buck wild. Well, the 70s was the wild west for this kind of stuff, the 60s and 70s. But anyway, they, so they divided the groups and then they were, were really focused on how do we get them back together again, right? How do we get them to trust one another? And so uh, they measured sort of antipathy and, and negative thoughts about the other groups at this point, pretty high, right? And then they gave them a, a series of uh, challenges they had to work on together to solve, right? Pushing a bus up the hill to get to the ice cream shop, for example. Um, and these kinds of shared goals where you need to work together 
and maybe even see it as a common enemy, right? Gravity in the case of the bus were, have been replicated in lots of other studies as ways to bring groups uh, that are in conflict together, at least to the extent that it'll reduce that prejudice number, move the needle on that and, uh, and help with uh, fomenting peace. And that's actually kind of why I got involved in social psychology to begin with. One of the reasons I got excited about teaching social psychology and teaching in general is because of parallel work or work on the Jigsaw Puzzle Classroom by Aronson and colleagues. And so this work uses a lot of the same ideas, right? And it's just, uh, it was post-desegregation, everybody held their breath and thought, well, you know, uh, we're busing in Black students into white classrooms and we're going to heal the rift between the races. And of course that didn't happen uh, for various, various reasons. And desegregation, uh, to a large extent, has been a failure in this country, if you really look at uh, who's in the classrooms. But at the time, there had been some hope that contact, connection, physically being in the same space, was an antidote to racism. And in fact, there's some data that shows that it's actually groups that live nearer to each other are going to have the most antipathy unless the right kind of contact is present. And so... Uh, they're using the same ideas of shared identity cooperation in the jigsaw puzzle classroom, which basically the idea of that is having a group of students and let's say you have one student who's marginal, who doesn't fit in with the rest of the group. And this could be uh, because of being a different race, a different religion, or just looking at sort of click dynamics in school. It's also been replicated in that way. And so you take that one student and put them in the group and they need to learn the day's lesson. Let's say the lesson is about Abraham Lincoln's life. Uh, so each student has a piece of the puzzle. That's why it's called the Jigsaw Puzzle Classroom. So one student will know about upbringing in a log cabin. One student will know about um, his time as a lawyer. One student will know about his road to the presidency and so forth. And so, but beforehand, very important, the students are in these other groups, the expert groups, where everybody in that group with you has the same piece of the puzzle they need to learn and master. Uh, so you become an expert on that topic collaboratively. So you are assigned, you, um, Alex, are assigned to learn about the log cabin days. And so first you sit in with a group of other kids who are also assigned to learn that and you read about it and you study up on it and now you know it. And then you talk about how you're going to bring it back to your jigsaw groups and teach it to them. Then you go to your jigsaw group and you teach them about the log cabin and they teach you about the other facets. And so what this does is this creates a dynamic where everyone has equal status. Everyone has a commitment to one another and is motivated to help each other succeed. Because in you succeeding to effectively teach me about the log cabin, you're helping me to pass the quiz I know I'm going to take at the end of the class. Right. And so uh, shared goal, common enemy, if you think, the quiz maybe. Yeah, yeah, the teacher. Uh, <laughs> the teacher, I hope not. I don't know. <laughs> As a teacher myself, I see that dynamic, but... I don't love it, but, um, but yeah, uh, shared identity where this particular cluster of the class. So all of these things are going to make the contact that happens structured institutional support is, is very important. So that's the, the fact that it's transparent that the, the teacher, the administrator, the, the school as a whole supports the idea of everyone getting along at the baseline. Yeah. So I use that in my teaching and I think that that kind of thing could be useful also in helping work groups to thrive. We, all of those features are necessary. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm picturing that in my mind. And when it comes to knowing about 
just knowing about the lore of of a fictional world or being able to do some kind of big plot related puzzle or mystery or battle or whatever. And there is such a difference between all of that coming from the GM or, you know, the the NPCs, the the organization versus everyone having a piece of that and having to share it, you know, via some structure like that. That's a very different experience of play and of like relationship to a group. Yeah. And that goes back to the idea of the more decentralized a community is in terms of leadership, the healthier it might be. That's right. And th- and that's just a health thing too, because health, uh, see, I'm now I just completely understand what you mean by health because, well, it, it's kind of a, a sustainability thing, I guess is a more accurate word that if you, if, if the knowledge and, you know, both fictional and just in how the thing runs is located in one person's brain or in a very small group of people and the information that they share like it's just it's it's just very logically like not as sustainable right one of those people moves out of state or gets hit by a bus or gets interested in other stuff or leaves or whatever or has or has something going on in their lives that they're not able to attend yeah all of those things uh and that brings me so there's another interesting thing that gets discussed that i thought a little bit about which is you know game worlds often have hidden lore hidden uh opportunities entire sort of builds that you have to discover in play by meeting the npc who's from that you know guild for example and that's a really cool thing right because it makes the world that you're playing in feel really rich and developed and there's much more here under the surface that is a living thing but just as we're talking about that can also have this downside of clustering knowledge clustering information uh, so that's a real tension i don't know if you've ever thought about that or if that affects games that you play in just uh a lot of people i know play in uh, games that are more short runs so there's not that sort of pooling of information as much mm-hmm. and that's something that really interests me about this style of play that i have like no experience with like I've done a little bit of buffer, like combat, like I've, I've hung out with the Amped Guard guys who are awesome in my experience. And I've done a little bit of like campaign tabletop play, but I have not done a campaign LARP. And that is why I love reading research like yours that really digs into what is the actual phenomenon like? I mean, I love it. It's, it's so great, but it has all of these challenges as well, right? The, the, the more world has been collaboratively built in the minds of players, the more rich it feels to me. I, you know, have had character arcs that are so meaningful to me and have, you know, when you're playing a character for two and a half, three years, it really does become a part of your life. And that's really powerful. And the relationships that you develop through playing out these stories with each other can be really beautiful. Um, And there's not necessarily always a downside to that. But uh, it is it can be tricky when you have so much that has happened in the world, like I said, that it's just it's just siloed off in people's minds and experiences. Uh, to sustain that shared world is is takes a lot of work and investment, actually. Yes, yeah, people need to be into it and sharing with each other and into storing that information and recording it and having either through like debriefs or post-game wrap-ups or that kind of thing through just willing to like keep that kind of thing alive, like maintain an oral history. And there's, I don't think there's a lot of structure in place for that. 
and that's something that could be done intentionally but i think that the communities that have these challenges are well you know they're volunteer run organizations that have slowly over time developed this richness but didn't necessarily start off intending for that to be the case so there's there's not a lot of best practices out there for how to manage just even all of the information. So that actually brings us to an interesting point, something I wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, thinking about the ways that when people are exposed to a broader LARP community or they read about different games or they play more in different games, you know, potentially through sharing all that knowledge, we can be fixing some of those issues or or finding practices to like get around them or deal with it. Um, but I was reading, uh, I was, let me find the title of this paper. Um, yeah. Conflict and change testing a life cycle derived model of LARP group dynamics. So this is one that came after your initial study of just specifically the group that you are a part of. And when I was just reading to the very start of it, you have a couple of hypotheses. You say, okay, uh, we're going to study this data and here are some things we'll, we think we'll probably find. The first hypothesis is the number and diversity of LARPs a player is involved in will negatively predict overall satisfaction with LARP groups. And I was like, what? I've never been so like page flip, like, like this, this academic paper is a real page turner. It's not something that's occurred to me, but I was like, okay, I got to know how this pans out. What, what did, what did you find in, in your data? Yeah. So first of all, I want to talk about um, why I thought that would be the case. Right. So kind of, this idea that um, social comparison or comparison is the thief of joy kind of sounds like a little bit hokey, but it's actually true, right? Social comparison can make anything you're experiencing feel less positive. So like, well, what do I have that they don't have? Or what do they have that I don't have rather? And so the more embedded a group was, the idea here is that you're going to be constantly comparing with the other groups these ideas of basically being able to change into other groups, people swapping groups when they feel dissatisfied with their experience, but kind of wherever you go, there you are, right? If there's uh, something you're dissatisfied with one group, it doesn't mean that another group is going to be the fix for it. And then essentially over time, you might get disillusioned in general. Uh, so those kinds of ideas also backed up in the uh, group dynamics literature. But, you know, as is often the case, uh, the evidence for that was sort of mixed. So if I recall, I don't think that I found strong support for that, for that hypothesis. So part of the reason I think is because the way that I was able to index that was complicated because what I did was I used the uh, LARP census, which was a sort of over 17,000 person worldwide survey that uh, Aaron Vanek and Ryan, Ryan Patty put out. Uh, a few years ago. And, you know, the questions were what they were. And so I was kind of interested in saying, okay, what can we do to just take these items and see if they're going to fit with any of the hypotheses that would come out of my first paper? Uh, just see if we can uh, test those hypotheses with these data. And so um, essentially things like I am not satisfied with my LARPs was, or satisfaction with your LARP experience was an outcome variable that I used a lot in these data. And that's kind of like, okay, what does that mean? Satisfied with my LARP experience. It's not the most robust dependent measure to say the least. Uh, 
I, I'd love to get in there. And actually, I will be getting in there because I am going to be working on helping with the potentially working on helping with the next iteration of the LARP census. So, oh, okay, all right, stop everything. Actually, that is interesting because the LARP census is a relatively gigantic, actually, chunk of data that I know has been very useful for a lot of researchers. And it's been really important to just like LARP scholarship as it exists right now. But also, there's a lot of problems with that data. And now it's getting to the point where it's it's kind of outdated. Yes. Yeah. So the hope, I think, is to do another round uh, with a whole bunch of people working on developing the questions and uh, refining them. So I'm excited. It's really early days now. So I don't have much I can say about it, but I'm excited to be involved in the project. Oh, oh man. I... I want to ask you everything about that. Like, I'm so curious about, I mean, I'll have to talk to you after it's done, I guess. Yeah. Stay tuned. <laughs> because really, it's just basically that we're going to do it is kind of the stage that we're in. So you're forming this group of <laughs> yeah. scientists. Uh, yes. Yeah. Right now it's been email chains, chains only. So um, there's not a lot of norms established. I was just going to say an email chain is a great place to storm though. Like that, it for sure happens. Oh goodness. I've seen it. Uh, I don't know if that's a healthy, <laughs> healthy way to do it. Um, so yeah, I kind of sidestepped your question <laughs> as a researcher, as a researcher is want to do when their hypothesis is not supported. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's interesting. And I think this is a really cool time to be looking at LARP. And I, I, you've been in the LARP scholarship game, like relatively a very long time, like given how how long that has existed and how much research that there is. Like in the first paper I read from you, LARP was in all caps. That tells you, you know, that tells you how far long ago it was. <laughs> Speaking of norms. Oh my gosh. That conversation. Have you been, have you seen any of those Facebook fights about whether large should be all caps or lower caps. That is fascinating. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Like it's beautiful to behold. <laughs> yeah. I have no, per I have no dog in that fight. I'll just do whatever the um, publisher wants. But I, I personally, I guess in my head, it's lowercase. If you really need me to weigh in on that. Yeah. Well, I like, um, I think Lizzie Stark talked about scuba. Like once scuba becomes a word, that enough people don't even know what it stands for. It's like, it's just a word now. Words are not in all caps. I buy that. I definitely buy that. I mean, all caps would denote the that it's an acronym, right? Which it is, but in my mind, it's also its own word. So that makes sense. I mean, we use it as a verb. Yeah, exactly. See, everyone hates that debate, but no one can resist it. It's true. It's it irresistible. True. <laughs> well, okay. I actually could dig into that if you wanted, because what does it do though? But it identifies who's us and who's them, right? So LARP academics use the lowercase LARP. And if you want to align yourself with that community and uh, represent yourself that way, then that's how you, one of the ways in which you can do that. Uh, other people with different experiences that they bring, you know, this is like the TTRPG versus the TRPG debate as well, which is, yeah. And that denotes when and how you started doing tabletop role-playing and what it means to you. So it's all, a call comes down to identity, uh, affirming your own identity, connecting with those who share the identity. And we know from research that 
those who are who feel that they are on the margins are going to be the most stalwart defenders of those boundaries. So the people who get the most invested and heated in these debates may on some level, oh gosh, now I feel like I'm calling people out. <laughs> but but the researchers suggest that, that you know, it's there's some kind of something going on there with wanting to affirm your group, either because you feel that, that, that it's under threat or that your presence mm-hmm. in the group is under threat. Or maybe you just don't have a lot to do and you want to dig into a Facebook argument on the, on that particular afternoon. <laughs> it's just your Saturday. It's fine. That That is something that's happening, though. That is something I absolutely see. And maybe maybe that has always been a feature of role-playing communities. But this feeling that LARP is changing or because LARP is growing, that it comes to belong less to you because now it also belongs to other people or there's something crucial that is being lost in how it's changing. And that is the part of it that you loved or something like I that. I feel a little bit of like a LARP gate on the horizon, um, you know, referencing gamer gate and this idea that, Oh geez, there's uh, our community has a certain set of standards or this is who we are. And once that starts to feel like it's changing, uh, that can be really threatening. Um, I actually was interviewed by New York, magazine for about Gamergate because I've done because I like kind of sat on the social psych side but also on the gaming side with my research so um they wanted to know what I had to say about Gamergate and I hadn't really thought about it that way at the time you know it's kind of the prompt caused me to have the thoughts if that makes any sense but I definitely see a lot of in Gamergate competitive victimhood that many people in LARP could also feel this idea of we we were in this hobby when it was sneered at, when it was, you know, verboten to when when we used to say to our colleagues, Oh, I'm going camping this weekend, you know, as opposed to I'm gonna go do a LARP. And now I'm thrilled to be able to talk to my colleagues and students about what I do. In the classroom, I bring it in to my lectures and I talk about the research that I've done and I talk about you know, I teach a class on social norms. I'm all over the place with LARP in that class. And and I think it's a good experience for both me and the students. But in the past, I was definitely secretive about the fact that this was my hobby. Um, but I think there are some people who think, okay, now that it's cool, there's going to be a bunch of people hopping on board. And that that kind of resistance to group change, right, is really powerful and is really natural. There's a uh, questions I think about what people's motives are for LARP and that's always been a huge issue are you interested are you here for the role player are you here for the combat or are you here for something else and if your motives don't line up with mine what does that mean and I think that what's unfortunate is that people just assume someone's motives um, just because they're new to the community yes yeah and this is something that I know comes out in really misogynist ways right where women are here but why what what is their what is their dark agenda? <laughs> what has brought them here? Yeah, and uh, gender is and sexism is so interesting, and a lot of intergroups researchers just don't touch it because it has these markers of intergroup conflict, right? Because there is that dehumanization across uh, group boundaries of well, I know what my group is, which is human and complex and distinct among our membership, but the other is homogenous and cryptic and less all the things that we are, right? Um, so there's that that definitely occurs. And I think that that's 
informing what you're talking about, which is like, well, I know what my motives are. I know that we all have been here. What about the women? It's just so inscrutable. <laughs> but uh, but I think that there's a lot there's a lot of uh, other stuff going on there too, right? Uh, obviously, patriarchal influences. So it becomes way more than the sum of its parts when you look at uh, sexist dynamics in communities. This is much much too ominous a note to end on. No, I got, um, well, I gotta... we don't have to. <laughs> we have to go. You have to go because I, I have I have a transition point from that, which is my current work that I'm doing. Well, actually, my question was going to be, what are what are you working on next? What's what's happening next with you? So let's just plow right into that. Yes. Okay. Related to these topics of intergroup identities and LARPing, what I'm working on right now is a piece about. Uh, sort of using LARP to try to explore marginalized identities or across identity experiences that aren't one's own. So somewhat inspired by work that Jenea Kemper is doing on uh, emancipatory bleed, as well as psych research on perspective taking and immersion as a form of uh, gaining empathy for other groups, understanding, uh, reducing prejudice, uh, I'm really, I'm working on a piece just looking at this experience and whether it is a positive, a net positive, or what are the pitfalls of it. So specifically, for example, um, somebody who wants to play, you know, I myself am a mixed race person of color, someone who wants to play that experience, wants to play the experience, let's say, in the fantasy realm of um, somebody who is a half elf who's been rejected by the communities but doesn't have that experience in their um, lived experience in their non-LARP life. Uh, That can be really powerful and effective to gain perspective, but there's a lot of problematic areas that it can uh, tap into. As one example, thinking I've played this experience and now I understand it, and then having assumptions from a, a canned experience in a LARP but knowing that you can go home and walk away and shed that character and not have that experience is very different. I'm I'm glad you're I'm glad you're putting some research into this because I know people get really stoked about the word empathy and we just want to put on everything. And I don't know, maybe it's related to grants or something. People just get really, really stoked about it and how it's gonna build your empathy and whatever. Um, when what they mean is information about someone else's life that's gonna have some emotion attached to it. Um, or maybe perspective taking at the most. And we want to hail these things, these, you know, these edularping experiences or whatever as so powerful and so meaningful and so educational, but not as much as you will think they are. Like not, it will be very powerful, but not as powerful as you will come to believe having experienced it, which is a super weird pitch on anything. And a little, a little knowledge or thinking that you have knowledge can be actually more dangerous than recognizing a dearth of knowledge. Yeah, that's, that's definitely the case. And I actually also use immersive role play in my teaching about identity. And so that's also informing some of my ideas. Um, and I, and I think that it can be problematic when someone who has, you know, what, there's a lot of really good work out there right now, I think in the and more in the blog space about the question of what are your motives for doing this and what are you hoping to get out of it? And I think that 
tapping into what Janaea has written about in terms of uh, intentionality when you're trying to use bleed to change your perspective, right? So I think the question of, are you really being intentional about what you're doing? What are your motives? Uh, are you journaling about your experience before, during, and after? Uh, are you are you really taking stock of what you learned and what you still have yet to learn? I think those can be really useful tools to improve uh, the quality of role play and the quality of uh, the perspective taking, as well as show to other people, maybe people from those groups that you're trying to learn about, uh, that your level of commitment is strong and that you are not just sort of playing tourist in their pain. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to study. And it's, it's, it's something that is not immediately observable. Like those, these two very different experiences of learning something very important about someone different than you and having a fun time in someone else's mm-hmm. suffering. It's, it's very hard to tell the difference from outside. And so you actually have to have some like interiority and self-reflection and honesty with yourself about your own motives. And that's, it's not only difficult to observe, it's difficult to have. It's difficult to cultivate. Yeah, and that's what I'm interested in doing is sort of thinking of what's, what's sort of a toolkit that I can offer. I think one of the really exciting things about my web research, for me, from just my experience of it, is that I can draw on these models, connect them with what's going on in the web community, and then hopefully at the end of everything I do, I'm offering something up, right? Here, here, here it's not just... You know, a lot of times in my uh, social psych side of research, it's it kind of ends with a, a vague nod to and policy could be affected or and, you know, you you know, we can reduce prejudice with this tactic. Um, but in my life research, I get to talk directly to people who are doing this work, players, GMs, designers, and say, well, this is what I think about how this could be done. And then people can test that out and then give me feedback on it. And that can be an iterative conversation. That's super cool. And something that uh, I never got in my uh, sort of graduate training style uh, research that I started with. There's a certain optimism there. I try. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. I mean, I think, I think what we do is so amazing and we can discover new worlds. And I mean, I grew up, my dad was a sci-fi you know, an African-American pioneer in radio who had so many tough things he had to deal with just to do his job. And, you know, he'd come home and he'd watch Star Trek. Why? Uh, this is a uh, IP that is about imagining better worlds, imagining fixes for problems that we have yet to even, you know, chip away at. And you have to have hope if you're, if you're working on the edge of these kinds of issues. Well, I wish you all the best with this research. Um, I wish you many happy times in your Warhammer campaign. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, gosh. Okay, I still have time because <laughs> it's at one o'clock. I still have to walk my dog and find my dice and all of those things. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, if if my listeners want to keep up with your research, see what you're up to and what you're doing, um, what, what is the best place for them to find you? Yeah, so um, I haven't been really good about it, but I do have a Twitter, and so maybe I'll start being a little bit more productive. So that's just Dr. Diana Leonard at twitter.com. I also have an academia.edu uh, page. Um, and you can just find me there under Diana Leonard, uh, lclark.academia.edu slash Diana Leonard. And I have all of my papers up on there. Uh, so those are some really good ways to keep tabs on me. 
Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this super cool research that you have done and also are going to be working on. Both are super rad. Thanks. Thanks for uh, having me. This has been a lot of fun.